Hello, this is your host, Jennifer Baker, and welcome to the Human Brain Project podcast, where we talk to the scientists and researchers that have dedicated their lives to solving the mysteries of the human brain. We discover the humans behind the science and find out how tomorrow's discoveries will be shaped. Professor Rainer Goebel is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Maastricht University. We'll be talking about his expertise in brain imaging of perception and cognition, neuroimaging and brain-computer interfaces. Thanks for joining us. Let's start with setting the scene. Tell us what you're working on at the moment. What is engaging you? At the moment, we are working on integrating, interfacing uh, cognitive neuroscience and artificial intelligence. And that's very uh, exciting because we, we have the hope not only to use brain knowledge to build better AI systems and robotic systems, but we also hope that we learn more about how the brain works, especially if we um, define our brain models based on the brain, then we have, of course, the hope that when we train these networks with uh, artificial systems, that we not only get these artificial systems to do something useful, but also to look how they fine-tune their, their own behavior by adapting their, their connections in the, in the simulated brain. And then we can look whether these learned connection patterns in these uh, simulated brain have something to do uh, with our human brain. So it can inspire us to look into the human brain, whether uh, nature has developed similar solutions as we found by training these simulated brains. So it's a, a, a two-way street in a sense that uh, the AI is helping to understand the brain and the brain is helping to understand the AI. Is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly what I try to convey. Thanks very much to summarizing it so well, yes. And when people think about AI, they can sometimes have very varied ideas of what that means. For some people, it's as simple as uh, an, a you know, computer-run tool that is just running in the background on their mobile phone, or it can be something like you would see in the movie, some sort of almost human consciousness. Um, give us where you think the reality lies. I'm sure it's somewhere between the, these two extremes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, actually, what you just said is, has actually happened just recently uh, on the social media. Some uh, companies claimed that they have reached conscious levels. Uh, that was then kind of turned down a bit, but, but nonetheless science fiction movies um, come closer to reality in parentheses. Actually, I'm much more critical. I think, the, the, as you say, the reality is somewhere in between. AI systems, especially in the recent years using this deep learning, become indeed better and better and do surprising um, things, not only recognizing images, people on images or animals or objects, uh, almost better than humans, but also um, in the language domain, they generate texts which, which you cannot distinguish uh, easily anymore from, from a very good writer. So the things have uh, progressed dramatically over the last years. Nonetheless, it is far away from, from Terminator, where robots take over the world and kill people, um, because the biggest, that's good that this doesn't happen, of course, but, but to understand why there are severe limitations, we should consider that these robots are just trained by uh, in the computer without a body, but just showing them texts or showing them images. They do not know how it feels to, to uh, feel a touch and things like that. So they are kind of just, you know, in a jar. They are not really existing uh, in an embodied environment. And that makes the way they learn and what their knowledge is 
depending on the uh, textual input on the images, but it feels sensation. And um, uh, in my opinion, the, the real smart and human-like robots will only emerge, and their eye systems will only emerge if they get also an embodiment. That's why the Human Brain Project focuses so much on robotic research, because putting um, brains not just in a simulated computer, but putting them within a system, a robot, which acts in an environment. And, uh, and if you rotate yourself in an environment, your input has already changed because of your own movement or the movement of other things. And you have to learn to kind of survive and do smart things with your body in the world. It's not just the thinking. The thinking is also in service of, of course, our actions. And therefore, going to um, uh, brain-derived robotic systems is a smart approach, in my opinion, because it helps us to really learn much more how the brain really works and how much the real world shapes our thoughts, shapes our, our mind. And that is missing in the today's big AI systems. And that, in my opinion, leads them to deep learning, but not so much to a deep understanding of how the world really is and the, the knowledge about the world. But nonetheless, it is impressive what these systems can do these days. I think it's really interesting because while on the one hand people are worried about AIs becoming too human-like, there's another group of people who are rather um, upset by the idea that our brains are nothing more than sophisticated biological computers. We want to feel that there is more to us than that. And this is, comes around again to this whole question of consciousness. Yeah, that's that's of course um, touches on our human ego in general because we somehow think we are somewhat special. We have a, a mind. Religious people, of, of course, assume you have a soul, which is something going even be, beyond matter. And then if, if then people claim, no, our machines here can already do things which you thought you requires a soul or consciousness, then these people get attacked philosophically. I'm not saying we are there yet, yet or AI is there yet, but it is, for me, not impossible to think that they reach levels of... of um, knowledge and behavior at some point, if they get more brain-derived at least, which comes closer to human intelligence and human consciousness. I see not a principal reason against it. This doesn't mean that I think we are very close to that, but I see no principal limit. And that is indeed what you say, a threat for many people's thinking, because they thought we are so unique in the universe and uh, humans are so smart and have consciousness which separates us from many other animals, for example, we can think about ourselves, that we are mortal and all these things, which are incredible, of course, but they also mean um, that people think this is unique and can never be reached by machines. And I would not follow that. I would say it might be possible, but I also understand um, uh, the threat uh, that people experience when they're here. It might be that machines also become conscious and intelligent. Well, I mean, of course, one of the big things that separates us from the machines is context and, and background and um, narrative. So I want to hear, uh, Rainer, from you a bit about how you came to take up this career. What were the steps that led you to it? Was there any turning point when you thought this is the direction of study I want to go in? Yeah, that actually started already in high school. I had actually two interests, astrophysics, so I wanted to study the universe. And the other was already the brain, because I read some very nice popular science books on the neurons of the brain, the synapses, how the brain might learn and so on. And I was just fascinated by that and got two nicknames. One was synapse and the other was Zweistein. So I, one was more for the astrophysics, the other for my interest in the brain. And uh, really, just before starting to study after high school, I only at that moment decided 
the universe in the brain is more exciting than the physical universe outside. And, and then I entered uh, psychology and also computer science because I have a passion for computers since, since, since I can almost remember. Started with a C64 and, and even smaller computers before. And, and so I combined things which sound a bit strange. Why you would study psychology and computer science? I was at that time the only one who did that. Uh, and the reason was that I um, not only had a passion for programming, but I also heard about uh, artificial intelligence for the first time when I started to study. And I said, wow, this could be good that I can maybe use my uh, computational skills and my interest in understanding the mind and the brain to combine these two things. First, I did what is called symbolic AI, which is actually very important and a bit neglected these days of deep learning. And I built a large-scale neural network for that time. It's not comparable to today, but, but this was... In the early 90s, I built a quite large neural network, which opened me a lot of doors to experts in this field in the US, um, which are now still around, like Jeff Hinton and others. After doing my PhD on neural nets, this mainly my computational skills to simulate some mind processes in a neural network, I, I got uh, uh, in a deep uh, frustration because I thought this might be interesting. It does something nice, but how much has it really to do with the brain? Because the brain knowledge was very limited and to some extent is still today. And therefore, I wanted to work empirically mainly. So I said, I want to study the brain. And I was very lucky that one of my heroes uh, at that time, Wolf Singer from the Max Planck Institute in Frankfurt, uh, offered me a position in his lab. And I basically then um, turned around and tried to learn to do monkey electrical physiology to record from neurons to really learn how the brain, brain works. So that was then supposed to be my career, but, but then I learned about FMI, Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, in the human brain, non-invasively, without opening the skull. And I said, wow, if that is really possible, this is what I want to do, because I can study directly the human brain and can relate it to the animal research, to the monkey research. My supervisor, Wolf Singer, first said, Rainer, you, you, you throw away your career. This is a bad move, because these FMI signals so much worse than these electrical recordings. And of course, he was in some sense right. The signals are much worse, but you can measure them everywhere in the brain. And this is quite high resolution these days in our high field scanners. So therefore, I think we need both. We need the animal research, um, maybe see a, a few neurons very precisely what they do. But we also need the fMRI, where we see topographies in the brain, areas in the brain, and how they work together. And so I switched a bit my career. But then something important happened, and this is the Human Brain Project. And the reason is that, um, as I told you, I switched to empirical work completely and did, did no longer do for, for 15 years neural net modeling, except giving some courses for students. But I did not actively do research in that field. And then the HPP came up. And I was fascinated by uh, the general approach to link to different fields. And it helped me uh, to go back and, and, and marry my two main interests. Namely, one is to do empirical work in the human brain. And the other is to do computational work, to model this, to build artificial brains, uh, to, to simulate human behavior. And that's exactly what I now do since some years in the Human Brain Project and really enjoy this very much. So the Human Brain Project definitely is the, the reason why I now can integrate two of my passions. 
Well, this is something that's coming up again and again in these podcasts, and it's nice to hear the kind of the the echoes and repetitions and overlap between different scientists, because you said it's not very common to look at computation or computing and, uh, if you like, psychology, philosophy and these other softer subjects. But yet so many of the scientists involved in the Human Brain Project do that. It might be rare in the wider population, but I think we've got a unique group of uh, individuals. So... Tell me a bit, I mean, what drives you day to day? What is your aim? What would look like success to you? Most of my work, um, especially the content work, not the management work, but the content work uh, feels not like work. I think that is the most important thing. For example, to come up with new ideas, with a smart team here I have built up, you can, you can develop in discussions your own ideas in a team, of course, and you can contribute to that. How shall we do that? How shall we model how perception works, how thinking works, how grasping a cup of tea works? All these things you can really think about yourself. How would you do that? What knowledge do we have about this? How can we measure the brain to do this in a better way in the future? This is fascinating because these are still the same questions, just much more detailed than when I was a student or even at high school. But now I have the the chance to, to scan the human brain, to learn about it, to build uh, systems, not alone, but with, with, with a team. And this is the other huge aspect of HPP, namely to allow us to do this collaborative work so that, that the experts in robotics uh, join uh, with me together to build something we cannot do alone. They might not have the access to the brain scanners, might not have the knowledge about some of the computational aspects, but you can basically bring together experts from all these different fields, neuroscience, machine learning, robotics, and work with them to answer bigger questions. And I think this is so motivating because you you realize what you can now do, which I couldn't do with my smaller team alone in, in my lab. And, and now um, uh, the work coming out from, from the collaborations I'm involved. And that drives me because you, you like to go to the lab to discuss ideas, to supervise PhD students and postdocs. This is really gratifying because it is focusing on, on bigger questions than you could do alone. And what's the one thing that you maybe wish the the wider population knew about the sort of work you're doing or the sort of collaboration that's happening with the Human Brain Project? I don't know if anyone in your family is involved in this. You know, is there there anything like that 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 you feel links what you're doing to to something that you want to put out there? My family is not directly involved, except uh, some relative of mine helped me in some experiments. But but the point is um, that the family and the wider audience are often very much attracted by our work on on BCIs, on brain-computer interfaces. This topic excites people more than many other topics, like like if we we develop a robot which moves uh, um, smartly, uh, navigates around, this is very cool. But a BCI fascinates, in my my experience, the public much more. So, so for example, we work on neurofeedback to help uh, depressed patients, or with Amsterdam, we work on uh, a system which is led by, by Peter Rufsema from Amsterdam, also in the HPP, on building a visual prosthesis for the late blind. So these are topics, uh, if you work on those, which uh, you have no problem to find interest in the public, right? So this is people are very, sometimes also scared, of course, uh, as we alluded to at the beginning, but, but usually they're excited about that and want at least to know more. So I had once a TEDx talk in Amsterdam and talked about our BCI work. And this was a great experience to be so exposed to the public and get lots of questions and discussions going. This was a very gratifying experience. 
I think it's probably natural if anything looks like it might be going in the direction of providing a therapy for illness or, or for sort of psychological disturbance. It, it's obviously something that we see as would be very good for society. You mean, you've probably seen in the papers all the articles about the recent potential breakthrough in Alzheimer's treatment. And yes. people do really seize on these ideas and want them to work. Do you feel that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that That's the point. If you say somehow we can delay Alzheimer's breakout uh, in individuals with some new medicaments, of course, you have the excitement of everyone because these are things which threaten all of us. But the interesting point is people are also interested for some other thing, not just to um, heal diseases, but also to enhance capabilities, right? For example, um, uh, work on, on, on systems which uh, enhance your attention or your emotional stability, even in healthy people. This is something people are very interested. I can tell you, we, we, we were approached uh, by the Dutch Special Forces. This I can say, it's not confidential. And we developed for them uh, a neurofeedback, so a BCI training program for, for special uh, forces, um, which, which are uh, recruits, which are trained, preventing terror attacks and things like that. So therefore, they are very interested in the BCIs, but not these are not, not, not sick people, of course, right? They're very special people, very good trained and physically very and mentally strong, but they still can improve. And, and so BCIs might not only be seen as something for disease treatment, but it can also be seen to enhance everyday life to some extent. And that's also what people excite. It's not uh, the focus on, on diseases is, of course, the most important one, but it's not the only one. I mean, wow, that sounds, that's kind of does sound almost like science fiction to make us superhuman and, and even more developed in strengths and, and, and abilities. We're talking a lot about, um, you know, things that you're very enthusiastic about, uh, the, the work that you're doing. Have there been any challenges along the way? Yes, of course. There are always ups and downs, uh, absolutely. The general challenge is to work progresses slower than, than you hope for. Why the progress cannot be faster, right? So, so why we still have no robots which can, can move like human or can speak and understand what we say, is, is we, we are not there. And, and, and it's partially because we also still don't know how the brain is doing that. Just superficially, we know which areas are involved and roughly what, what they communicate. But it's not, it's not really um, yeah, explicit, the knowledge that we really understand it. On the one hand, it's good also for the people we talked about earlier who are scared about uh, conscious um, uh, robots, for example, or AI systems. This is definitely a general uh, hurdle that, that progress you always want is, is at a faster scale, but the devil is all often in the details and you need just to do many experiments to make the right conclusions for the next smarter experiments. But there are also much more, more, more mundane um, ups and downs. For example, sometimes you want to do some um, large-scale simulations and high-performance computing and then you need to get the measurement time, which works well in the HPP, but generally it's not so easy to get because, um, um, as you know, the biggest AI systems are trained by social media companies at the moment, mm -hmm. like Google, Facebook, and so on. And, and, and that's a shame. I, I think universities should also have access to, to be able to, to build uh, highly performance systems, not just brain-inspired, but brain-derived, this real performance, which is matching also uh, classical AI systems and, and surpassing them, hopefully. And that requires access to, to high-performance computing. And this is another very important aspect of the Human Brain Project. They give their researchers and in the future with e-brains uh, because, because no one has just easy access. No one, I mean now in most cases, uh, and says, oh, I have this brilliant idea, but, but I cannot do it because I have no uh, million dollar worth uh, high performance computing systems around. 
Oh, it always does come down to resources. I know that's a, a constant concern for everyone, I think. Um, so I want to ask you a question based on, on another podcast we had uh, with one of your colleagues from the Human Brain Project, um, talking about uh, bioethics or neuroethics. What sort of role does ethics play in, in, in some of the work you do? Is it forefront of the mind or is it just something that comes about through practice? In, in any case, even if it wouldn't be forefront of the mind, the HVP would make sure that it becomes because they have established a nice system. So as you might know, I'm working one of the three science work packages. And in each of these work packages, you have to have a subtask, which is about ethics. So therefore, uh, this is by design, I just want to say, this is a good thing of the HPP. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, we, we always have this in our mind, not, not each day, but, but we reflect, of course, is it not good that this system, um, if it gets smarter, can be used maybe by the military or can be used for bad things? And of course, these we discuss. We have, we have uh, ethical uh, meetings um, um, and, and, and the team within the work package I'm leading to discuss these regularly and um, yeah, prepare also us and also the community outside the HPP as much as we can or we contribute um, uh, with the ethics expertise in HPP also to, to the public opinion building and awareness uh, what happens there. And at some, at some point, it can also reduce uh, anxiety. We are not there that, that, that these end-of-world uh, uh, scenarios are, are very close to us. I would never say that. And, and, and all colleagues I know would, would, would not, 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 not say that. So it can ethics and reflection about the possibilities which come out of, of AI work, for example, um, uh, definitely uh, can be put into context. But dual use and uh, so, for example, military uses it for, for, for making soldiers better or for doing something um, bad with AI. Um, that, that, of course, is a real risk. And if you make them smarter, also in the Human Brain Project, um, there is also an enhanced risk that other people um, could misuse this. And, and if you put the things usually open source everywhere um, available for everyone, that is uh, as nice as it is to share everything in the public. It has also the risk that other people can download it and, and might use it then for things you have not intended. So I always argue uh, in ethics discussions to put strings on what you publish. So to say this should not be used for this and that. Of course, people will probably still uh, not, uh, people who have bad intentions will maybe not follow these things. But at least you have done your job and say um, this was not meant for these and these applications. And please respect that. Uh, this is better than not doing this. Because then if, people, if you find people who used work from the HPP for bad things, then you can at least track back and find that, you know, they violated the, the rights of usage, which were uh, linked to this work. And this is what I always stress in these discussions. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's getting into philosophical questions now as well about society and everything. So what do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not got your head in the lab or in your studies um, to relax or unwind? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm known to be a workaholic, so even in the evenings or early mornings, I usually sit on the computer and code something or write something. But on the other hand, of course, I, I, I enjoy my time by, by reading uh, sci-fi books, uh, looking videos, um, uh, crime and sci-fi are my two favorite ones. But I'm also um, um, uh, enjoying hiking in the mountains. Yeah, I like fast cars, so I go to sometimes to Formula One races. At least I watch all of those. And of course, these days, 
um, you feel a bit guilty when you say that because of the CO2 uh, uh, awareness, um, which I also, of course, have. And at least I can say that to have a bit more peace of mind, I'm riding since more than 10 years electric cars. So therefore, I have a feeling um, that at least where I can, I try also to respect that what we do with our environment. Uh, but, but I cannot deny my passion for fast cars and Formula One races. That sounds fantastic. And I'm glad you said you like sci-fi because sometimes I'm embarrassed to say to real scientists that I like science fiction. But uh, it, it, some of it is very cutting edge and some of it predicts things that become in the future science fact. Actually, actually it's a good point you say because, you know, why I like sci-fi, it's not just to see spaceships gliding through space, but uh, I like movies like, like um, uh, Blade Runner where you, where you learn something, where you learn about arrogance of humans if they create robots which really become consciousness like in this movie. They treat them as slaves, right? And this is something which, which touched me already as a young guy when I saw that movie. So sci-fi is not just like the action or the bombastic stuff. Sci-fi is playing with society or what happens if we have sentinel robots, for example, right? And so therefore I see sci-fi also as something educational and important for society. I absolutely, I feel the same. I read a lot of Isaac Asimov and the yeah, people exactly. predicting satellites that, you know, at the time were so wild ideas and now we think of them as just yeah of course we have satellites it's I, i'm a know. great fan of Asimov. already when i was young i really read everything i could get from him yeah yeah it's fantastic and thank you very much reina for this fantastic conversation i hope uh, our audience has taken a lot away from it we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the human brain project podcast if so, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating, and most importantly, share with a friend. To learn more about the Human Brain Project, please visit humanbrainproject.eu and be sure to check out other episodes in this series, packed with fascinating insight into how our minds work. Thanks for listening.